We're in the midst of trying times. The coronavirus is continuing to spread and more areas are being affected. But this isn't a time to run and hide. Aggressive people are forged by fire and make no mistake about it. We're in the fight and in the fire right now. This is a special bonus episode meant to encourage and steal you toward healthy aggression when the world needs it most. My name is Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. Well, today is the second installment in a series of three conversations with people on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. You know, and I say second of three, I might just kill the third, the third one because I don't know about you, but I'm getting freaking tired of talking about COVID-19, quarantine, quarantine 19. That's what some people have done. They actually gained 19 pounds in quarantine so far. Uh, maybe I'm extra sensitive about that because I've got an MD with us. I've got, I've got a doctor with us and, and I'm feeling some crisis fatigue, but I'm calling the doctor to help me. You might be tired talking about it. You might be tired hearing about it. But in these moments, it's also important to understand that there are some real people, often very unsung people, who are on the front lines of dealing with this crisis in multiple ways across our country. Uh, We might disagree about the government's response. We might agree about the government's response. We might agree or disagree about how long stay-at-home orders should happen. But one thing we should all be able to agree on is that all of us owe a lot to all of our medical professionals. Give them a hand right now. Yes, doctors, nurses, technicians, facility teams, everyone in between. They're the real heroes of our crisis. And today's guest doesn't just work in the medical field. He ensures that millions of people across the Cincinnati region get the help and health that they're looking for. After years as an ER physician, he recently became the chief medical officer of TriHealth, a massive health system which also happens to be Cincinnati's fourth largest employer. He oversees the quality and safety of care at TriHealth's six hospitals and approximately 140 practice locations. He's he's going to take us behind the curtain, and I'm not going to go for any passive like not all the truth answers. I'm going to press this guy. I know he's up for being pressed or he wouldn't come on here. Let's welcome to the aggressive life, Dr. Kevin Joseph. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> heck of an introduction. Well, man, I, it, trying to get somebody who's in the know to, to handle and deal with some questions is very, very difficult because folks like you, you're just, you're just going in all different levels. And I've got, I've got different questions for you. Just, just the first easy one. So the C-suite, how is the C-suite compared to being on the floor of the ER? What's, what's the com- comparison to contrast there? Gosh, um, it's a different game to a certain way with the same, some of the same rewards. With regards to the reward system, you can imagine that it's on a daily basis, you get thank yous and it's wonderful as a frontline caregiver, nurse, physician, respiratory therapist, as a uh, executive of C-suite, usually don't get many thank yous, but a lot more of uh, complaints of issues. But that's, that's part of our job is to make everyone else's job easier so that care can be delivered to the, the patients better. So it is different, but uh, at the end of the day, if you're in healthcare for the right reason, which is to leave a legacy in the community and then um, you've saved some lives and you're doing it in just a different fashion. 
and it's so still very rewarding. It's just, um, it's a different sport. So do you think you'd be more stressed or less stressed if you were actually wearing scrubs in the ER right now? Uh, different stress. <laughs> different. Saying. You know, it's, the volumes in the emergency rooms across the region are lower, but how tense it is is a little bit more because you also don't know who's coming in next, which you're used to as an emergency medicine physician, but there's a different level of anxiety given COVID and that we don't know all that much about it. We're learning more and more now. People are becoming more comfortable, uh, but it's pretty stressful. As an executive, we're kind of fighting a, a little bit of a different, a same war, but different battle where we're trying to make sure that we have the right amounts of PPE for the frontline caregivers, which is really a heck of a task nowadays. I can write a book on just the challenges of getting hold of it in the, the black market that's out there. Uh, people are upselling it for 10 times what the normal cost is. And so making sure you have the right PPE, make sure you're making the right decisions. There's been so many hard decisions to be made in a rapid basis and trying to communicate it and communicate the why. Uh, it's, it's something different, very different. So is this the biggest public health threat that you've, you've ever actively worked on? Or are there other moments of high stress that you've experienced in your career? Well, with regard to public health, I think it depends on the way you look at it. So a lot of people say the largest public health issue is diabetes, obesity, smoking. Uh, World Health Organization says inactivity. Uh, and, and, you know, pollution is another one, depending on where you live. The difference with this public health crisis, COVID-19, it can affect anyone. And it's a lot more difficult to really uh, make sure that you are immune. You can take a lot of great measures, six, say six feet apart, good hand hygiene, not touching your face, wearing a mask. But this is something that has transcended the globe so rapidly and uh, pervasive. And it's uh, one of the most um, virulent and contagious uh, illnesses that I've been a part of anyways. There are some others, uh, Ebola, which has different characteristics, but this is, uh, this is different. I think one statistic is in the last eight weeks, the flu has killed about 25,000 people. In the last two weeks of COVID-19, it's killed about 50,000 people. Really? Yes. So wow. So one, one quarter of the time, but twice as many people have died from it. Wow. That is... You really threw me off my game with that one. <laughs> because because my, my question to you is going to be, well, it still is like, do you know anybody personally who has contracted COVID-19? I do. You do? Yep. How, yep. how many people do you know personally? Uh, at least three. Three? Do you anybody who's quick in my head. Do you know anybody who's, who's died from it? No. no. I think that's my problem, doctor. I am... Not my problem. That's a good problem to have. You know, it's a good problem to have. That I think mine are worse than yours. I, I, I know one person who has had it, and I know, or somebody I know whose parents uh, were in deep stuff over it. And I'm, you know, I pastor a church of tens of thousands of people, and my vast, my vast network, like the number of people I know who are emailing me who are saying this is affecting them, is very, very small. So it just leads me to go like. Help me understand how we're not overreacting here. I will tell you that uh, Ohio, and in particular Cincinnati, across the country has been has been looked at. Uh, our rate is excessively low. We do not have a. It hasn't really penetrated this community that much. It's not 
because it can't. It's not because it was special. It's because of what everyone has done. Very, Cincinnati really pulled together, acted quickly, social distancing, closed down bars and restaurants and gyms and everything so soon before it had a chance to kind of hit that point on the exponential curve to take a ride. Uh, other cities have not been as, as fortunate. What I'm afraid of is people will say, well, look, we don't have many cases, so we don't need a mask anymore. We don't need social distancing, right? Well, no, because the mask and social distancing is what is keeping out the problem. If you now stop it, the problem will be here. And so as far as I'm concerned, masks are going to be part of the way of life until a vaccine is found. Same thing with social distancing. I just had a phone call with a bunch of pastors. They wanted to hear my take on this. And I'm telling pastors, from what I hear, it's hard for me to imagine a place like Crossroads, which when I say place, I don't mean just a church. I mean a concert venue. I mean people Mm -hmm. sitting shoulder to shoulder. It's hard for me to imagine the government and public opinion allowing that to happen inside of a year and a half. You agree or disagree? I agree. The the testing vaccines right now, there's a few people who have had the part of the trial and they've been injected with the vaccine and they're feeling well. So the vaccine studies only had a chance to test whether they can contract it yet or not. So first we have to inject them, then we have to build up an immune system, and then we have to test them if it, you need to test large numbers of people. So once we even get it tested and we say, yep, we're good to go, that's probably a year. Well, how are you going to immediately overnight vaccinate the whole public? You can't. You can't make the vaccine that quick. And so, and it's only at that point when most people are vaccinated and you essentially have a herd immunity, you can say, okay, you know what? The chances are low you're going to sit next to someone in a movie. And so, so you think that we're not going to be able to have our way of life until there is a vaccine. Is that what you're saying? Correct. I do not think we will be back to the normal way that we were living before. Wow. That's sobering. And, and my thing is, <laughs> this is so good. Brother, I'm so glad I have you. I got somebody who's giving straight answers <laughs> here who actually knows way more than me. Because the thing that, the thing that I keep getting frustrated. We had, a, we had a friend of mine, a Cincinnati city councilman on, and he was giving us some answers. The people in control, the government, the governor, these people got to start giving, giving us like answers. When do you think this could happen? So, because we have payrolls to plan for. We've got, we, we have real people's lives that if we don't have any information, we got to do some things that are very, very difficult. So when I hear you say that, I go, well, you might be wrong, but I just love that you actually, that's an aggressive thing. You just said it. That's fantastic. Dr. <laughs> Kevin. It is, it is an estimate. I do not have a crystal ball. That is my guesstimate. It's uh, within the, the realm of many other people I talk to. But I think I have a little more liberty to be flexible with my estimates. Uh, one is I'm a physician, and so I get a little bit of leeway there. And two, I'm not a public figure. And public figures are held up to extreme accuracy, unfortunately, right? Because they're human. They still are going to make mistakes. Uh, but they say one thing and people latch onto it, whether it's an estimate or not. And so I think that's why some individuals like myself do feel more comfortable uh, speaking aggressively, so to speak, about the reality. And I think if we don't, that's where people get harmed because they don't know the reality. They can't protect themselves. They can't protect the family. What, what's, the, what's the hardest decision you've had to make in the midst of this crisis? There's, uh, there's been so many, but if I was going to pick out one, uh, and, and we were, I believe, one of the first ones in the state um, before Governor DeWine made this declaration, 
as well as the first, uh, I believe the first one in the region, is to not allow visitors into the hospital. Mm. We made that decision. It was a hard decision. A lot of discussion around the executives and the reasons why, why not, uh, the risks, the benefits. In the morning, we implemented it. It, it was a sad morning. And there were lots of tears. Uh, people were frustrated. Um, people you know, said kind of a, a hug and a kiss goodbye to the loved ones, which they, no one was expecting. That was hard. But I will tell you, at that point in time, people said thank you. because they, they understood that it was to protect their loved ones and the team members as much as they really didn't like it. They understood it. And now it's commonplace. But what made it hard is we were the first ones in the region to do this. You have a different struggle when you first out of the game. I get it because my daughter is going in for uh, our second grandchild and we're not going to be there. Mm. Our son-in-law is not going to be there. That's really weird. Really, really weird. And I know it's a really, really tough call for you and other medical executives to make. We know that you, you want to serve your, your base and you want to make us happy. We know that. And so when you made a decision like that, I was like, okay, these folks are seriously concerned. That's why they did that. So thank you for making hard calls like that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'll ask you a question I, I asked you earlier. Given the low numbers in Cincinnati, you still think it's right to be on the same path we're on right now? I think it's right what we have done because it's worked. And if we did not do all that, and therefore we had that unbelievable surge that has hit New York, we uh, would not have any beds. We would not be able to take care of the patients. So we uh, cut down the volume, changing elective procedures, one, to make sure we had enough beds for the patients with COVID-19, and to preserve our personal protective equipment, such as masks. Every time you go to OR, there's eight masks you used up per patient. That's a lot. And when it's at a shortage nationally, you'd run out and you wouldn't have those masks for basic care. So we had to conserve to make sure we were ready for COVID-19. Now, we didn't have a crystal ball. Fortunately, the community did a great job staying away from each other and hand-washing and, and masks. So now we're saying, okay, well, volume's still low. We have good control over it. Now we need to start open up the valve a little bit. We can't open it up all the way. If we open up all the way and say, okay, all restaurants and movie theaters and places of worship and hospitals and um, sporting events, open, be back at New York State, um, which we don't want. As the governor is doing and the uh, president is doing is, Deciding what do we open up first, and it's going to be staged, and we're going to open it up, take an eye at it, look at it. Okay, did we see a small surge or not? And if we didn't, okay, let's try something else. And so it is going to be gradual, methodical, incremental, uh, the way we're going to bring back society. No, I'm just, I'm just struck here that I'm talking to the smartest guy in the room right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> well, as it, as it relates to this, all of the conversations I have with other people, we don't, we don't, we don't know. We don't have the, the level of depth of understanding that you do. So we normally have a lightning round, but we're not going to, to end our time. This is not going to be a lightning round. This is going to be a, um, oh, let's call it a, a deep end round. If you can answer it shortly, answer it shortly. I know these questions I'm not equipped to answer because I virtually none of our listeners are equipped to answer because we don't have the uh, the depth and awareness of somebody who's in the C-suite of a major hospital has been an ER doc and is in on all this stuff. So let's play this game. I'm going to ask you a topic and you're just going to talk about it until I think you're boring. 
okay? <laughs> the shorter the better. Here we go. Here we go. So experts are warning of a, of a second wave of coronavirus in the fall. Does this mean another, do you, does this mean another quarantine? Should we start stockpiling right now for the fall? No, I, I would not. Um, we have a better idea of how it changes. We have a better idea on how to control society. And by the way, that, that came out from, uh, gosh, uh, I think it's uh, Dr. Redmond. But the main reason why he says the second round may be worse is because it may combine with the natural flu, the flu we all know. And so now you have two viruses to deal with. Not that COVID is going to be worse, but when you add COVID to what is already a seasonal virus, now you start down with more. That's the reason. Yeah, that's good. See, I'm getting the answers I normally don't get. This is fantastic. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the hidden victims of the pandemic. Those who are sick, but not from COVID-19. Uh, if, if I get sick, how can I be sure that going to the doctor is safe? Um, doing anything right now isn't uh, 100% sure, but um, you're more likely to get uh, a bad outcome from you being sick and not be treated than from COVID-19. I can tell you this region is very, very well prepared. And that's why we're in a situation right now, which is excellent compared to the rest of the country. And I do want to say that there's a lot, where actually the CEOs of the systems are talking right now to put out a public service announcement to the community, say, please go to the doctor. And it's not because of volume, it's because we know of several people who are waiting too long to come to the physician. And then ultimately they're sicker than what they would have been if they came originally. And there's a greater death rate from it. And so there's more harm being done by second guessing whether you should go to a physician than there is um, staying at home worrying about the COVID-19. All right. You mentioned earlier about a vaccine and I've always put vaccine in the category of, well, everyone's got their own opinion, this and that, but I'm hearing more and more that, no, the way out of this is we have to have a vaccine. So give, give us a layman's explanation of how you develop a, a vaccine and how, how it gets replicated. Like what's the mechanics behind creating this? Sounds pretty darn ominous to me. Yeah. So a lot of vaccines are created by you take that bacteria or virus and you, you break it into pieces. So it's no longer active. It can't function. That we've now injected into you. Your body sees it, doesn't like it because it's foreign, starts developing antibodies to attack it. Once you have the antibodies, your body now has it imprinted in its immune system, those particular antibodies. And so next time, as soon as that virus or bacteria enters into you, you have antibodies ready. Versus before, your body's never seen it, it looks at it, and it has to take five, seven days to start developing an immunity to it. So that's uh, the whole purpose of vac vaccine. You mix, have something similar to that virus to bacteria, you inject it into someone, your body recognizes something foreign, develops antibodies to it. Sometimes the antibodies will last a, um, a long time. Sometimes you need a booster, like tetanus shots. Sometimes it's just seasonal, not because it doesn't work. Uh, next year, it's because that flu virus mutated. So what we're trying to do is take parts of COVID-19, yeah. um, specific parts, and uh, chop it up and interject it to people, see if they develop an antibody reaction to it that works. So let's say we had those parts. We had them in a the Petri dish. We were, we were, we were vaccine. We had, we had it. It, it was there. Mm -hmm. What's the industrial machine like to crank that thing out? I mean, how many facilities do that? How long does it take? 
That's a great question. Usually, um, when someone develops something, they have the intellectual property and they can be the only ones to sell it and make it. During times of crisis like this, the government really has a lot of ability to force companies to do things that normally they would. I, my suspicion is that um, they will do the same uh, with uh, vaccination, the vaccine. Uh, I can't say for certain, but if it's just one company trying to pump out a lot of vaccine, it's going to take a long, long time. So, so then right now there's a bunch of different companies that are trying to be first to market or how, how does that work? Correct. There's two that are uh, closer. Uh, there's about four or five others that are still you know, attempting and doing everything they can. Uh, the first person who makes a vaccine is going to be a, uh, a well-off individual financially, or the company's going to be, because they have the market worldwide. Wow. Wow. All right. All right. Social distancing. We're all sick of that term. Uh, we flattened the curve a bit. Now what? Are we waiting for another domino to fall? Are we going to be socially distanced for the rest of our lives? Well, social distancing until there's a vaccine. That's my prediction. That's what I would do if I was the governor or the president. Uh, as soon as you, that's what's worked the most. That has been the key to flattening the curve. So if you take it away, there's, there's spikes in block. It's like telling someone, um, a patient, well, why'd you stop taking your diabetes medications? Well, my glucose was fine. You stop taking them, it's going to go up. Same thing here. If we stop social distancing, it's going to go up. You know, the government can do whatever they want about opening up. They can open up restaurants. If people still don't feel comfortable, it doesn't matter. It's the, the, the person, it's the public who has the ability to open up the economy. They, people need to spend to make um, us get back to normal economically. All right, experimental drugs. Are there any experimental drugs that have any hope, or are we all just having a pipe dream? No, there are. There are. Um, hydrochloroquine is one that um, there's some equivocal evidence that works, uh, some evidence that it may harm people. There's also antiviral, redemisvir, that is being studied quite a bit. There's also a treatment called covalescent plasma. Going back to what we talked about with antibodies, we take someone who has been already sick and they've recovered. Now, remember, they have the antibodies. Like a blood donation and they spin it down so now they only have the antibodies of the person who was previously infected. And so I actually believe it was yesterday at Bethesda North, we injected some of this covalescent plasma into a patient to, to all of a sudden give them a jump start with the antibodies to start fighting off the COVID-19. And, uh, and it works. It works pretty well because um, you, you essentially give someone an instant immune system. Wow. Which uh, you don't hear of, every, you don't hear that of that one every That's day. That's fantastic. All right. Um, hey, we all know about social distancing. We all know about washing our hands, not touching our faces. Is there anything else health-wise that we should be doing or not doing during this time? Like basic tips for health we might not be doing that would enable us to fight something off. Staying healthy is, is a couple of main things. Eat right, um, exercise, and get plenty of sleep. Those are three main things I can say. And you can go on to then a two-hour talk and eating right. You know, fruits and vegetables and what do you want. And none of these get rid of the virus. But there is studies occurring saying, does it help with healing? Vitamin C and, and you know, zinc and um, there's a few uh, herbals. And this. But really, the ones that are most beneficial is sleep, um, activity, and then a good diet. All right. So let's say this crisis ends tomorrow or let's say it ends a year and a half whenever it is 
based on your um, your knowledge base right now, wh- what do you hope we will have learned from this crisis? What do you hope that will be a natural attitude that you, Dr. Kevin, will have for the rest of your life coming out of this? What, what are new skills that you or we are picking up right now that we should have had before that we will now have forever? What's uh, Just forecast forward how you see us permanently changing, or at least for you, how you are going to try to permanently change coming out of this. So um, while I'm talking to you, I'm going to pull up something uh, I read in, in a video. I do a daily video for 13,000 team members at TriHealth. It's a three to five minute, given a daily update of COVID-19 and government was happening. Now I want to pull up something because every Monday I give a reflection at the end. And I gave this one a couple weeks ago. But in the meantime, uh, what we've learned is that we're not aggressive enough or innovative enough, but this is forcing the issue. And I have been amazingly impressed in how people can say, no, we're going to move quickly. We're going to act quickly. We're going to be innovative. You know, what people have done for healthcare and making masks and crossroads, thank you very much for the, the lunches you bring into the command center. We got a, a giant basket of goodies and games the other day for the command center. And <laughs> we really appreciate it. And we thank you. Um, but I think hopefully society will end up stronger, similar to the Boston Marathon bombing. And you know, now they're the Boston strong and it's a heck of a culture they have there. But let me now read something, if I may. Take yes. up 30 seconds. Please. It's from Laura Kelly Benucci. No idea who she is. When this is over, may we never again take for granted a handshake with a stranger, full shelves at the store, conversation with neighbors, a crowded movie theater, a Friday night out, the taste of communion, a routine checkup, the school rush each morning, the stadium roaring, each deep breath, a boring Tuesday, life itself. When this ends, may we find that we have become more like the person we wanted to be, the person we were called to be, and may we stay that way better for each other because of this forever. That's what I hope happens. That's good. Kevin, what, what can we do to help you and other medical professionals? Anything average people can do to make your jobs easier or your life brighter? Well, first, what the community has done in partnering with Healthcare really is fantastic. Every system is getting masks, and that's that's really sends a strong message of caring for the caregivers. You know, healthcare people go into it for a calling, for a reason to live a, a legacy upon uh, people's health in the community. And just a thank you goes so so far because that's what we're here for. So it's just thank you for what you do. Thank you for being in front lines, and thank you for being brave and, and strong to you know run to the fire instead of away from the fire. That means a lot. So when you see someone walking down the street or not too close in a um, Kroger, uh, say thank you, stop them from six feet away and just say, you know, I appreciate what you're going through and I understand and I, I, I thank you for that. So that goes so, so far. Yeah, you can also go to your local hospital, ER room, anywhere, and you take in a carafe of Starbucks coffee and a dozen donuts, it'll get someplace it'll get eaten. I was on a, I was on a midnight run recently with the local hospital and did that. And, you know, you don't have to wait for some big organization to have some organizational initiative, whatever. You can go out and do something right now. And that's oftentimes the things that are most uh, touching to people, you know? Agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So this has been great. You have been great. If someone wants to 
just see what you're doing on social media. You got any social media stuff you do or, or books or anything. This is basically your time to advertise for anything you want to advertise for. You know, <laughs> I'm not one of social media. I do All not right. have Facebook. I've learned it takes too much time or Instagram or Good. I don't do any of that, but thank you for the offer. I have not written any books and I'd like to someday, but a little bit, uh, I'm occupied at this moment. Uh, you know, the only thing I would I'd say is, um, Make sure you go to the hospital. Make sure you see a physician. This is, this is looking after you. Uh, it saddens a lot of us, the executives, healthcare providers, to know that um, people stay at home. And so the best thing you do for, for me in my advertisement is to just make sure you seek the right care. Dr. Kevin Joseph. I will take you to be my doctor any day, any time. I don't care what hospital you're in. If you're in the C-suites, if you're in scrubs, I just find your, I just find what you said being incredibly frank, incredibly um, honoring. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You, uh, we got to have you back another time on the aggressive life, but I hope it's not during another pandemic. In the meantime, <laughs> we'll see you next time on the aggressive life. Thank you, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band Judges for the Music. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.